This is Farmland. Coming up, James Healy, the National President of Mochrana Firma, is here to outline how a new limit on tax relief will impact on young farmers. We have a special interview with Fianna Fáil's Barry Cowan on the decision of Bordnamona to accelerate plans to cease peat production, resulting in significant job losses in the Midlands. Shay Phelan, potato and tillage crops specialist at Chagask, is here to discuss the impact of the late spring, drought and mild autumn on this year's harvest. But first, our reporter, Connor Finnerty, visited a young dairy and beef farmer whose farm partnership plan now faces uncertainty due to measures announced in the finance bill. Running a dairy and beef enterprise near Nina in County Tipperary, Bill Gleeson is in the process of entering into a farm partnership with his father. He welcomed the fact that both stamp duty relief and stock relief for young trained farmers were extended for a further three years as part of Budget 2019. But the proposal to introduce a cumulative lifetime cap of €70,000 on the amount of tax relief that could be enjoyed under Young Trained Farmer Stamp Duty Relief and the Succession Farm Partnerships Tax Credit has cast doubt over Bill's plans. The initial announcements were very welcomed by all of us. We thought this is fine here at home. We're, um, we're in the process of setting up a farm partnership. So from what I saw of the initial budget, we thought this was just what we wanted. Like it seemed, it seemed to be fine for us. Um, to keep our plans running along smoothly. And then with this latest release um, from the finance bill of the cap of 70,000, it's it's going to alter our plans greatly. We're, um, our stock relief is going to be down. I'd have plans personally of rather than renting land in the future, if I could buy land here closer to home, it would, um, it would make my life an awful lot easier. My father obviously hasn't got a farm for the rest of his life. So I need to make this farm more efficient for one person than what it is at the moment when we have two people working full time. The measures revealed in the finance bill would seriously affect Bill's farm partnership plan, as well as other young farmers' plans throughout the country. Everything is going to have to be rethought. Uh, my value in the partnership has been lessened. So the young farmers' value has been lessened because of the fact that um, the stock relief that I thought I was able to access for the next few years is now being the value of it has been lessened greatly um, i know a lot of farmers they're in in the early talks of doing farm partnerships and um like it has to affect young farmers i know here in my parish alone there's only you'll count on one hand how many young farmers there is it's very difficult to attract young farmers into farming and now all of a sudden the government are further pulling out the few things that can incentivize young people to come into farming Bill feels that young farmers could have been notified about the proposed changes sooner. We got absolutely no warning of what was coming. Normally there would have been some bit of information let out earlier in the year saying that we'll have to do this and we would have had time to assess it and um, see what we thought. But this year it was just slipped into the middle of the finance bill. The dairy and beef farmer is hopeful that the implementation of the changes can be rethought, given the challenges already presented by Brexit. Of all years with Brexit next year, there's complete uncertainty in farming circles to do with it. Um, the government have said they've had to do it because it's bringing it in line with EU regulations. And yet they won't bring the def definition of a young farmer in line with EU regulations. We're still classed at 35 here in Ireland. The EU regulation says 40. So I question why they have to suddenly bring it in line with one part of the EU regulations and they won't bring it in line with other parts of it. We're joined now by National President of MOCRA, James Healy. James, this week 
Minister Donoghue announced changes to tax relief measures uh, on some measures for young farmers. Can you just outline specifically the changes that are potentially coming down the line? Well, on Budget Day, Minister Donoghue outlined that the Young Farmer Stamp Duty Relief and the Young Farmer Stock Relief that have been there for the last number of years were to be rolled over and extended beyond the 31st of December uh, this year until the 31st of December 2021. And on Budget Day, we were very happy to hear that. It was good news for, for young farmers around the country. But unfortunately, the devil was in the detail when it came to the finance bill. And the change, uh, changes that are being proposed is that across those two reliefs and including the Succession Farm Partnership Scheme that a cap of €70,000 would be put in place for the what is essentially being called state aid uh, that the young farmer could benefit to, to that amount. So it's putting a limit on how much the young farmer can avail of across those three schemes. What kind of a signal is that sending to young farmers? It's very disappointing and, and I suppose while we appreciate that this limit has been in place in, in European legislation since 2014, I think given the timing of where we're at um, and given the age demographic of, of agriculture as a whole, it's very disappointing. I think if it hasn't been introduced since 2014. I don't see what the, the hurry is in bringing it in this year. I think we have a lot of uncertainty ahead of us and I think it, it is disappointing that the government have chosen this year to, to bring it in. You're alluding obviously to, to Brexit coming down the track quite quick, quickly. Um, so just the, the implementation, the timing of this is really, is really poor. It is and as Bill would have uh, outlined, there's a huge amount of young farmers that over the last couple of years have put in place plans with be it the bank or with Chagisk or uh, with partners that they've started farm partnerships with. And a huge amount of that would have been dependent on availing of the stamp duty relief and the stock relief in particular. But the succession farm partnerships have become more popular in the last couple of years. And I suppose we have a number of questions now as to how this is going to be implemented. And if you're in the middle of a scheme, are you going to start at zero or if you have availed of stamp duty last year, are you starting at zero or uh, is that going to be taken into account and you're starting from 30 or 40,000 depending on what you've done? There, there's also some uncertainty around um, how much of a, the state aid is deemed to be. So if you're a young farmer that's inheriting from in, an, in a family transfer, is the state aid the 1% between the young farmer relief and the uh, consanguinity relief or the 6% that will be there uh, from the zero to the 6% that is a standard stamp duty rate. And there's a lot of those quest questions uh, still existing. Even ourselves, we've gotten um, some figures from two, two different accountants and they're at odds as to how they see that those two points coming together. So obviously that would have a huge impact on the family transfer. and. There's always been a limit there on the young farmer stock duty relief of 70,000. So what I see this as essentially doing is eliminating the value of the, the young farmer stamp duty relief, which pushes the point of transfer from the older farmer to the younger farmer much further on. The, there's no benefit to doing it now at, a, at the younger age. And as it was, we saw that a lot of those transfers were taking taking place at 34 and a half so that they were just coming in under the 35. So this is probably going to push a lot of those farm transfers far down the line. And that 
from our point of view, is very disappointing because it, it just pushes back the point at which young farmers are being given the responsibility to take control and have a say in running the farm. And we always say that the younger a young farmer can, can get their hands on the reins and have a sense of responsibility for the farm, that the more enthusiastic, the more driven they're going to be. And I think this is a, a backward step for, for Irish farming. It's a very serious issue and at the moment we have about 5% or 6% of farmers in Ireland aged under the age of 35, mm. that's according to the most recent stats that are out there. You are seeking a meeting with Minister with Mr. Minister Donoghue. What's the latest on that? Is there any updates? So we haven't, I checked before I came in and we haven't had anything as of yet. Uh, we're hoping we're, keep, we're going to keep pushing and knocking on the door because I think this is an issue that needs to be put before the minister and I think we do need to show him the impact that this is going to have on young farmers, particularly at this time of uncertainty. And I think there needs to be uh, a delay put on on these changes to get over the hump that Brexit is gonna, going to create. I think at this point we don't even know if there's going to be a deal that could lead to catastrophic results for, for agriculture and I think if you see a deal done before, the, before March then there is a forming of circumstances for young farmers somewhat but we're so far from that point at this stage that I don't see how we can introduce these changes similar to how we keep telling the EU that they can't, we don't understand how they can do a deal with Mercosur with Brexit outstanding. We need to apply the same, the same principles to what we're doing at home. James, as you say, the devil was really in the detail on this. You know, on budget day, it seemed that things were, had, had worked yeah. out well for, you were happy enough with the results. Yeah. Um, do you think that the young farmer voice is being heard loud enough in Leinster House? I think... The results of whether we get a meeting and uh, the hopefully some changes that come out of this will be the, the telling of that tale. I think to be fair to the minister uh, and the government, they have always been reasonably, they've always been willing to meet with us, willing to hear our arguments. And I think the changes and the reliefs that are in place are a positive step for, for young farmers. But I think we're probably coming to the crunch now and we'll see how, how much they're truly listening to the voice of the young farmer. James, with the abolition of quotas, the dairy sector has seen massive expansion and it's, a, it's an exciting mm. time with lots of opportunity there for young farmers mm. who are potentially looking to go down that route. On the beef side, the outlook is, is not so, mm. is more mm. bleak, more questionable. Um, what kind of message are you getting from young beef farmers out there at the moment? I think what truly highlights the difference between beef and dairy is the fact that the age demographic and the average age of a dairy farmer has reduced significantly over the last number of years. And I think that shows that young farmers believe that there's a future in dairy and they're willing to, to go into the industry and, and their parents or whoever they're working in partnership with have faith that there is a sustainable future there for them. I think we're seeing the complete opposite on the other side with regards to beef. And I think from our point of view, we've always said that uh, we need to be around the table, I think. And that comes whether it's the government or the meat industry. We all need to come together to show young people that there is a future in beef farming and a sustainable one, that they're not working f to live off their single farm payment, that there is a, f there is a profit in rearing beef. And I think um, we've seen with the developments around the beef forum over the last couple of weeks, I, I think that's very disappointing because I think as it has probably not been as, um, it has not provided the results it could have, but I think we've put forward some changes 
to say that it needs to meet more regularly. There needs to be a list of actions out of the B forum on every occasion. And I think something that we've also seen is that the retailers who are taking a significant chunk of the profit out of every kg of beef that is produced are not at the, the B forum. And I think they need to be brought there so that they can be questioned on, on what they're on their input into the, uh, the supply chain. And I think protesting has been very successful in the past and it may well be successful in the future. But I think if we're to create a sustainable future for beef, I think we need to be around the table. James, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for coming into us. Next, how is the village of Littleton in County Tipperary coping since the closure of its peat briquette factory earlier this year? Conor Finnerty has this report. Bournemouth's relationship with Littleton in County Tipperary spans over 70 years. Fianna Fáil councillor Sean Ryan explains that the closure of the briquette factory resulted in the loss of 124 jobs. It's been a huge part of the social and economic fabric of Littleton and the surrounding areas for, as I said, over 70 years. Um, you know, we didn't think it would happen, but uh, in 2015, there was a report commissioned by Bornemona which looked at its peat operations in both Derren Lock in County Offaly and here just behind me in our plant here in Littleton. And uh, from that, it emerged that one of the plants was going to have to close. Um, various reasons were given. I suppose one of the main reasons that was given was the lack of demand for briquettes. Um, and that, I suppose, since the introduction of the carbon tax, the demand for briquettes had gone way down. So um, the announcement was made then on the 4th of May 2017 that the plant behind me here was going to close. Um, and the date for the closure was given as March 2018 and on the 21st of March this year the machines were turned off at 7.30 that evening and the production stopped. Many families in the area have connections with Bornemona spanning generations. The Ryan family is no different. My grandfather worked here. In fact, he was the very first employee of Bornemona, clock number one. Uh, he started here in 1946 at the old plant and then he moved over to this plant in the mid-1970s. He worked on the Weybridge just behind us here uh, and he worked there for a number of years. Uh, my uncle is also one of the 124 workers who lost his job this year. So I suppose we've had a connection right from the very start with the plant. Many first cousins of ours and cousins of my father's worked here as well. So a huge connection and we're no different to any other family in this area. Every family has had some relative that has, that has worked here and some family connection. There are currently 16 people working at the Bornemona plant in Littleton. But once the factory is decommissioned and the boglands are rehabilitated, the gates will close for the final time. So what you're seeing going on at the moment is you're seeing various machinery taken away, various things being taken down and the boglands being rehabilitated. And that's what they must do under the terms of their EPA licence. Those 16 people will be working here, we believe, until probably towards the end of next year and uh, then the plant will fully close down. Um, we've set up a task force at the moment uh, between ourselves, that's the county council, between uh, Bornemona management and between the council executive. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to see what's going to happen here for the future. So Bornemona are telling us that, you know, they are actively trying to sell the plant here and trying to market it for another industry. So we're hopeful that we'll succeed on that. And we're also looking as well at the lands here because you have a vast array of lands stretching from Killeen's there down in Bananunti right over to the border with County Leash over in Temple Tui. There's a huge vast array of land there. So we obviously Bornemona would be trying to put a number of caretaker agreements in place with some landowners. They'll be trying to develop, we hope, a feasibility study to see if there's a possibility of running a greenway on the old rail track and various other walks. And what we're trying to do is look at activities that will bring economic value to the area. 
The task force is also keen to look into the possibility of creating some alternative industry at the plant. Ryan outlined that some of the machinery left behind at the plant could play a role in this. We're advised that some of it is still here. Some of it has been moved to other Bornemona plants around the country. Um, if you walk through some of the peatlands behind us here, you'll actually see some of the old carriages are still here. So some of it is still here and I suppose maybe one of the ideas going forward was that if Bornemona were to open a new museum or something like that around that, you know, some of that could be kept and, and could be on public display. And we've said, you know, that a site here in Littleton would certainly be some place that should be considered for that purpose. The local councillor added that the rehabilitation of the bogs is something that the council is monitoring very closely. In terms of the ecology of the landscape, they have, the Bornemona are putting together a plan to make sure that the bogs are rehabilitated properly. If that is reflooding it, if it's certain drainage that has to take place and so on, Mark has, Dr. Mark McCurry has ensured that it will be done properly and they will conform to the terms of their, their EPA licence. The loss of the Bornemona plant in Littleton cannot be underestimated, Ryan said. Loss of Bornemona has been an absolutely massive blow to this area and I don't think it's an, any exaggeration to say that the closure and the loss of 124 jobs behind me here is akin to the loss of three or 4,000 jobs in Dublin. That's the economic scale we're talking about because, you know, Bornemona has been a huge part of the social and economic fabric of Littleton area and the wider, the wider district for so, so long. You have so many different little businesses down the village in Littleton, which were earlier on in there, you'll have seen, you know, little shops which would have grown up on it. You would have seen, you know, the local DIY store, the garage filling station, hairdressers, lo local little restaurant. All of them rely on Bornemona and the business it got from Bornemona. Our post office as well, which is under threat, has relied on the business it got from Bornemona. So there's so many different things that have relied on it. It's going to have a catastrophic effect. While Ryan acknowledged that Bornemona is trying to diversify its base, he believes that more needs to be done. Ryan hopes that Bornemona will be able to venture into an industry which would bring real jobs to the area in the future. Maybe something in renewables, maybe something in biomass, maybe something of that nature that will provide real jobs. That's something that we need and I hope that it will happen soon and I hope Bornemona are successful in trying to market their plant and develop an alternative industry here. Earlier, I sat down with Fianna Fáil's Barry Cowan to discuss the implications of Bordenamona's latest announcement. We're joined now by Fianna Fáil spokesperson on public expenditure and reform, Barry Cowan. Deputy Cowan, thank you very much for joining us. Yesterday, Bordenamona announced that under its decarbonisation agenda, it's going to stop harvesting peat by 2025. Does Fianna Fáil support this move? Um, look, we acknowledge and realise and have been well aware of the need uh, for a decarbonisation programme. And, you know, it was as a result of the management of Bordemona and its workforce agreeing a pathway for that decarbonisation programme. Culminated, I think, in a WRC decision back in 2016, whereby there would be um, a slow uh, easing out of peat production to culminate in its total elimination by 2030 and that apart from if there was uh, voluntary redundancies during that period they would only be supplemented by natural wastage as we approach that time based on this sort of age profile there is within the organisation. Yesterday's announcement um, has come as somewhat of a shock, uh, the scale and extent of the numbers that have been talked about and the the, the, the decarbonisation uh, culminating in, and completing in 2025 is five years earlier than expected 
And it's against the background too of ESB not having yet made an application uh, to the planning authorities for co-fueling of peat and biomass at their plants in Lanesborough and Shannon Bridge, um, which will no longer have the benefit of the public service obligation payment to ESB in 2019. That's a worrying factor too, and only adds to the, some of the confusion uh, surrounding this announcement yesterday. But obviously our first priority uh, as a public representative and as a member of Dáil Éireann is to those who, who will immediately and in the, over the coming months lose their jobs. We have to ensure that every effort is made by uh, management and Bornemona to adequately recompense uh, those people with a package that meets uh, their requirements. And that's, our, that's our first priority. Thereafter, if there's to be compulsory redundancies, that that be done with the agreement of the workforce and the group of unions representing them uh, and dealt with in a manner which befits the history associated with the area and it should not be imposed on anybody, that there should be an agreement as to the pathway and how that's uh, evolved. So do you think that time frame is fair that they're accelerating accelerating it to 2025 to stop harvesting by 2025 well, I don't think, or do you think that's too soon well i don't think it's fair when you have adequate parallel uh, opportunities uh, for that transition to meet the the, the, the agreement and the buy-in of the workforce in the locality in the region and that's what has that's what the the, the greatest worry and concern i and others have presently because we don't see um, an effort on the part of the state to have a forum in place that has the relevant stakeholders and workforce around that table to ensure that innovation and enterprise in the region is explored with a view to having the transition um, matched by an effort to subvent uh, replacement jobs in the area. The reason behind uh, the decision, as you mentioned, decarbonisation, uh, that is to do obviously with our plans to reduce, our targets to reduce carbon emissions. Um, the target for 2020 is to reduce it by 20% on 2005 levels. Um, it's it's you know widely criticised and widely reported that we won't we won't hit that. In fact, our emissions are going up. But do you think that 2020 target of reducing emissions by 20% was ever actually achievable? Well, it may well have been achievable, but only if the right pathway was put in place and only if the right infrastructure was in place to help and assist various industries do that. But there had to have been an effort to, to compensate areas that were making that major contribution. I mean, it's very simple as far as I'm concerned in relation to yesterday's announcement. It has come too fast and too quick. And in the first instance, there's a responsibility on the management to look after those that are immediately affected in relation to the package that's that's offered to them. Secondly, to, to, to safeguard the remaining jobs and ensure we don't have a cliff edge with another four or five hundred jobs being lost. There's an obligation on ESB and on government to ensure that they live up to the expectation that they and the commitment that they had given to apply for permission on the other two plants in addition to an extension on the Eden Dairy plant. That goes without saying. And thirdly then, the state cannot sit in his hands and avoid the repercussions and the ramifications of yesterday's announcement. And how do they do that? They ensure, first of all, there's adequate funding available to help and assist the region. And we're saying in that in that regard, you have a carbon tax. There should be there should be um, ring fencing of a portion of that for this purpose. 
you have the loss of now of the PSO, which is the public service obligation that the state made to ESB to subvent and supplement uh, the industry, that there's a saving to the state with that being eradicated next year, a portion of that should be made available. And there is an EU globalization fund that can help and assist regions which are hit by the loss of such numbers of jobs. And a, 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 a precedent in relation to that was in the UK when the coal mining district uh, suffered similar losses, that that fund was put in place. And we have at, 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 at the disposal then of that funding uh, a group of um, relevant stakeholders whom are more than interested and capable and willing to ensure that that is spent wisely and that that benefits those for whom it's intended whether it be the local authorities, uh, the local workforce, ESB, Board of Mona, uh, relevant um, educational institutions in the area, and local authorities, and public representatives. And it's imperative that that is put in place as soon as is practically possible, and should have been put in place before this. And I'll refer you back to the negotiations we've had with Fine Gael in relation to the the, the, the recent budget. When the issue of carbon tax was put on the table and the, and, and the prospect of raising it, I had said on behalf of my own party, yes, I'm willing to investigate and elaborate on that proposal, but only if there is a quid pro quo for the industry and for areas that are affected by its implications initially. Uh, and the government uh, recoiled from that and didn't proceed with it, but they, we, wouldn't, we would have obstructed its implementation if it wasn't uh, joined by an initiative to help and assist uh, regions and areas that would be affected by it in order to ensure that there was adequate, adequate uh, or communications, adequate education, adequate help and assistance for that sectors or those sectors or those regions to be in a position to take ownership of it and to uh, agree with the sentiment that was needed in order for it to be a success into the future and to provide alternative forms of opportunities. On those alternative forms of opportunity, mm. yesterday, yes, families, uh, workers in, in management administration positions, machine drivers, mechanics, foremen, they are all left absolutely devastated now by the announcement of the up to 430 job losses, 150 initially up to up to April next year. Um, and yet the Board of Mona has stated that there will be jobs created in other areas, other alternatives to, to replace those jobs. But what confidence do you think that workers will have that they sh to, to stick with a company where, as you say, the alternatives don't seem to be in place, um, the, the vision is, is still not clear for everybody involved, and in terms of even the redundancy packages, we're still waiting for all the details there. Do you think people will actually continue to stick with Board Namona um, and put their faith in their in the future of the company to, to protect them? Yeah, that, that is that is a worry because there's no doubt morale is not is not uh, where it should be, and that has been the case for a couple of years now, and it's very evident from my interaction with members of the workforce and talking to union sources. So there is a job of work to do for management now if they are to uh, be in a position to bring the workforce with them. And I know there has been efforts in recent years at diversification, some successful and some not so successful. You look at their, uh, their, their they've moved into the wind sector, the wind energy, they've moved into solar energy. 
Uh, they're into waste management. They've made investments abroad, one of which was one ridiculous white elephant at a cost of 25 million in relation to white moss in the UK. So, you know, that doesn't augur well for the support of the workforce in relation to decisions that are taken at the top in relation to how they expand or how they diversify. But we do recognise that there is potential in relation to wind, there is potential in relation to solar, in relation to, you know, improving its, its, its footprint in relation to uh, waste management and the, and the opportunities that will arise there. It's also looking at aquaculture, which translates in layman's terms to fish farms. It's looking at herb growing based on initial conversations that I have with the medical supply sector throughout the world. And there's opportunities there. I understand that and I recognize that. And there's also opportunities in relation to the grouping of power on their lands to avail of opportunities might present themselves in relation to data centers at locations which would be suitable for that sort of activity. But you know, that's well and good, and there are opportunities there. But I think in order for the workforce and the locality and the region to have faith and trust and hope in that, there should be this forum that feeds into that process and allows uh, an input on the part of the greater and wider community who will then, as I say, if they take ownership of, its, of, its, of the prospects, they will drive those prospects and ensure they deliver thereafter. Because it's not only the, the workforce and their families, it's whole of communities that, will, that is affected by this, um, and the region itself. And the, the service industry beyond the workforce itself is greatly dependent on uh, the success of Bordemona. It has been the major driver of the economy since the 30s and the 40s, and Todd Andrews and this, our party has a great affiliation and association with the organisation, and we won't be found wanting at this crucial uh, juncture and I want to ensure uh, my constituents and the wider Midlands region that this is to the forefront of my political agenda and to that extent to that end you know I and my colleagues will go to Brussels next week and the government can come with us if they wish or they can stay behind but we will be there ensuring that the globalization fund is put in place and is available to the to our locality and to our region because you know, again, when the government talk about the 15,000 jobs that have been created in the region in recent years, uh, that's all well and good, and, 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 and thankfully they have. But many of those are commuters. Uh, you know, I commute every day myself, three or four days of the week, and I see, and I, you know, whether it be when I joined the, 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 the motorway in Kilbegan or when I see others joining it in Kinnegad, I can see the, 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 the huge influx into Dublin from the outlining regions. So and, you know, talk about new jobs being created. Many of them are students, for example, registering with the revenue for the first time uh, to supplement and to help their parents be in a position to provide that education that gives them the opportunities to go throughout the country and throughout the world and more look to them. So, but, Deputy, will, yeah. the, will the jobs then, the emissions that are, are displaced from, from the peat side, would you be concerned that they will actually be added on the transport side if people lose jobs, if the jobs aren't there in the Midlands and people end up commuting for work? Yeah, well, look, that, that, that's another day's work and there has to be progress made in relation to the opportunities and the alternatives that government as a, as a driver of this offer to consumers in relation to electric cars and whatnot. And that's back to the point I made in relation to the discussion we had briefly in, in, in the run-up to the budget with Fine Gael, the main government party, in relation to their intention to bring in a carbon tax. My point is you can't use that purely and simply as a revenue resource for the state. It has to be used as an incentive uh, to, the, to, the, to the inhabitants of the state to move in a direction that meets with our requirements in relation to climate change, but is also conscious of the opportunities and alternatives that have to be offered for uh, regions such as ours. 
Deputy, the plan is to co-fire the, the, peat sta the power stations with peat and biomass um, up to 2028 20, now, and then it will be solely biomass. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we can't grow biomass in Ireland at any large scale domestic level. Are you concerned that we're going down the route of having to import large amounts of biomass in the future? Yeah, and you know, Bordemont have explored the potential of that growth taking place on their extensive lands, and to date, haven't uh, you know hasn't materialised to an extent whereby it's economically viable. Uh, but it is a, a huge cost factor in relation to the obligation and the commitment that we've made, and um, we're conscious of that. And I'm conscious of, as I said, the hundreds of millions that were made available by the state in relation to the PSO obligation that. And, you know, a portion of that might help and assist in order to meet the short gap, the, the shortfall in the short term that there is to meet that demand. But there may well be other opportunities uh, for uh, the power plants um, beyond biomass, beyond peat. And, you know, we look at our waste management, we look at what, after all, the efforts uh, to recycle and reuse, you're still left with a residue. And can that residue be put to work in generating heat or generating um, components for road making, for example, which I've seen in, in, in cities in Germany in the past. Bordemona have long sought a subsidy for farmers to grow willow as part of this as part of this um, solution as they see it um, to add biomass into into the domestic market. Will Fianna Fáil be supporting uh, Bordemona in their move to, to bring in a subsidy yes, for indeed. farmers? Yes, indeed. And that, that again would be part of the agenda for the Just Sustainable Forum that I'm proposing that would be in place as a result of this announcement and should have been in place prior to its announcement, to be frank about it. But be that as it may, the opportunity arises now. And I've written to the Taoiseach, as I've said, and I've written to the, the relevant EU Commissioner and will follow that up with a meeting and will today even uh, hold the government to account as to their reaction and their response to that call on, 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 on those that I represent on their behalf. And, you know, the, the opportunities, initiatives uh, that can help other sectors to feed into this whole process, like the farming sector, of course, is something that we would be supportive of. And we're conscious, too, of many of the seasonal workforce within Bordemona were part-time small farmers themselves who supplemented their income with summer work uh, in, in harvesting peat. That too is gone and opportunities for them to remain in farming are put in, in jeopardy by the loss of the income generated from uh, Bordemona in that, in that way and fashion. We'll leave it there, Deputy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Next, with the potato harvesting season well underway, our reporter Siobhan Walsh caught up with one of Dublin's well-known potato growers. The potato harvest was kicking into top gear this week on Kyo's farm in North County Dublin. Kyo's began harvesting potatoes for crisping in the first week of September. But Tom explained the main potato harvest began last week. Uh, this year it was, it was a very late harvest. Uh, we didn't kick off ourselves on our own farm till around the first week in September. Uh, that was with our Lady Rosetta for crisping, uh, which is normally the first. Um, so uh, that harvest led right through until the first week in October. Behind me here, this is our Morris Piper. So this is actually the start of our table potato harvest, uh, which is very, very late. Normally we'd be harvesting for a store probably second, third week in September. And here we are third week in October and uh, we're only getting going. So uh, we have a very, very late and long harvest ahead of us. The drought was a big issue on farms this year. Tom explained that parts of Kyo's farm received just two inches of rain in 12 weeks. Potato crops need at least one inch of rain per week in July and August. 
was was an, was an issue. Uh, we had a very late spring, which which uh, obviously led us off to a, to a very late start. And then we had the the potatoes really just sat in drought for about twelve weeks uh, without without rain. This particular field we're in at the minute was the only field we actually got water to. So this field was heavily irrigated, um, but it's only about fifteen percent of our crops. And the rest of the the rest of the fields unfortunately didn't. And obviously that's having a, a knock on effect in yield. Supply will be down this year, but Tom is unsure by how much. Yields are down in the UK and across mainland Europe. As a result, potato prices are up. The supermarket shows that the price of potatoes has increased. Um, we can see that continuing for the rest of the year. Uh, from a supply point of view, it's difficult to say for sure because we really haven't, like we're, we're literally only at the start of the, the main crop harvest season. Uh, but once the harvest is finished, we'll be able to, to, to make a proper, a proper calculation on actually where the country stands from a supply point of view. Uh, but we're already seeing, starting to see supply issues in England, in mainland Europe. Uh, they're already contacting growers in Ireland looking for supply. Um, but we need it here in Ireland. So it's, we have a very, very difficult year ahead of us. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we need to mar supply the Irish market, the Irish consumers, what keeps the potato industry going here in Ireland. And it's important that we continue to, to supply, supply those consumers. Um, you will not see any issues around supply probably until around April or May of this year when stocks will start to get a little bit tight. But I, do, I don't see any long term issues in relation to you're always going to see potatoes on the supermarket shelves. From an export point of view, yes, I think there will be opportunities for Irish growers to export overseas. Uh, we already are, are getting uh, queries from uh, from retailers and wholesalers uh, in countries outside of Ireland who are experiencing supply issues on, on their side. While the dry weather brought problems like secondary growth, it also made for excellent harvest conditions. In fact, Tom explained that when soil is too dry, potatoes can become bruised. Flavor point of view, we have we have amazing uh, texture uh, because of the dry summer we've had. The dry matters have, uh, in the potatoes are really high, so they're really really flowery. So very very good quality potatoes this year. Um, we have some disease issues. Uh, rooster crop in particular has experienced a lot of secondary growth, where the potatoes actually shut down because of the heat, and then they started to grow again when the rain came in August. And when they started to grow again, they actually started to produce small little baby tubers again, which has led to a lot of issues around around those crops so there'll be there'll be increased losses as a result of that we're blessed in that we've had quite 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 a late autumn uh, you know c weather conditions have been warm uh, we've had little rain uh, up until last week the soil was actually too dry uh, there was a big risk that you could actually bruise potatoes when you're harvesting them uh, over the last few days we've got a little bit of rain which has helped you can see there's a nice bit of moisture in the soil here be behind us um, but it, it is early days and uh, you know we've been in this position many years before and rain has come and we haven't got back into the fields until February. So uh, please God, these nice weather conditions continue. We're joined now by Shea Phelan, potato and tillage crops specialist at Chagask Oak Park. Shea, how much of the main harvest is completed at this stage? What kind of estimate are you seeing? It was around 25% last week. Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's somewhere in around 25%. It's difficult to say, really, because... Um, a lot of guys had to hold back last week for, for various different reasons. Some crops weren't just mature enough to harvest last week. So rather than being going full steam ahead, some guys had to just pick and choose what fields were, were ready to harvest. So I'd say 25 at max, 30% is probably harvested now at this stage, you know. We saw in the VT shade that Tom Kyo uh, raised some concerns that the weather was almost too dry last week and potatoes are bruised as a result. Is that is that a rare complaint or is that an issue at the moment? Um, it generally is a rare complaint this time of year. Um, 
what we're seeing out there at the moment is that soil is very, very dry. So normally when, when uh, potatoes are being harvested, the soil actually cushions the potatoes as they go up the, the web of the harvester. So what's happening this year is that the soil is so dry, it's actually falling through the web onto the ground. So the potatoes are exposed a lot earlier on the harvesting process than they normally would be. So that does or can lead to, 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 to bruising if the harvester is running too fast, for example, or if the guys on the harvester aren't paying enough attention. So it can be an issue, generally it's more of an issue earlier in the season, say in August, maybe September when there's early harvesting going on, but certainly this time of year it's not normally, not normally an issue, no. In general terms, Shay, it has been quite a, a volatile year between the drought and late sowing. Uh, what kind of problems uh, did those that volatility cause? Um, the year that's been in it, it's probably been one of the most difficult and trying years that a lot of t potato farmers would have had for, for quite a while. And um, we started off with a very cold spring, so um, a lot of the early crop that we would normally have been planted down in Wexford never actually got into the ground. So those early varieties like Home Guard, British Queens, the areas of those actually fell quite significantly this year because we never actually got conditions to plant them. And then when we came to the main crop harvest, we were started probably about three weeks to a month later than we would normally start. So we started in uh, late April, early May before we really got into planting. So that we knew it was going to have an impact coming to this time of the season in terms of yield and harvest date. And obviously then the big problem during the season was the drought and the really high temperatures that we experienced in, in, in early July. So in those, in those cases, what tended to happen with a lot of crops was they went, became dormant and they stopped growing during the really hot temperatures. Um, and we've seen a few disorders in, in crops around the country whereby there's secondary growth. So you have this uneven growth in the crops. And in some cases, we saw the, the, the potatoes actually in the ground sprouting again as if there were seed again. So they were trying to produce even more tubers in the ground. So that's, that was an issue that, that was widespread across the country. But luckily, we were able to tackle that um, just as it was starting to happen. So I think a lot of crops, the, the, the losses weren't as good as we or weren't as big as we thought they were going to be. Um, and obviously now at this stage, um, we're trying to harvest at the moment. We're probably again three weeks later harvesting than we would like to be, normally like to be. Uh, we would normally start harvesting early October. We're now in the last week of October and we're really only starting to harvest now. And the big fear is on, on, on the grower side is that if the weather gives up on us in the next couple of weeks, then we're into a lot of losses when you start harvesting in, in bad conditions. So it's been a, a really trying year uh, on growers so far and it, it's not finished yet, you know. Well, the weather, the weather has improved. Uh, tillage farmers are making the most of it at the moment. Uh, on the potato side, the prices um, have increased as well. Uh, but what about in terms of quality and supply? What are uh, your concerns there? The concerns are to start off with, we're, we're about a thousand hectares less in terms of area planted this year than we would have been last year. Um, and we had plenty of supply in 2017, but with the reduced area and the reduced yields that we're likely to experience, although we're not fully sure what way yields are going to turn out just yet, um, the likelihood is the supplies will be tight. Um, we probably will have enough to supply the market, but you know it's, it's kind of on a knife edge really at the moment. Um, and it's a similar story all across Europe. So bringing in imports from, from across Europe is not going to solve the, the problem either because they are going to be very, very expensive across Europe. And we're hearing that in different sectors across Europe in terms of the, the chipping trade, where, um, the, where some of the supplies over there are becoming very, very expensive. You know? So it is a concern. Uh, at the moment, I'd say it's too early yet just to predict what way it's going to turn out, but 
it certainly would be a concern. Is the price increase enough to compensate farmers for losses? Um, look, a price increase is always helpful. There certainly is increased cost this year. Um, I was talking to a couple of growers around the country who have who have had to put out extra irrigation this year. Normally they wouldn't irrigate very much at all, but they've had to put out maybe five between five and ten applications of water throughout the season. And that's all very expensive work, especially if you have to dig boreholes or drill wells or whatever it is to do that work. Um, and never mind buying the equipment to do so. So the price increase, yes, it will be a huge help to farmers. There's no doubt about that. Um, whether it'll be enough to, 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 to put them into profit or not depends on the yield and how, how the crop responded, you know. And there's been a massive increase in winter cereal acreage this year. Do you have any estimates on, on the increase? Um, difficult again to say yet because we're, we're not fully finished yet. We've probably another two weeks of sowing still to go. Um, winter barley, we estimate, will be somewhere around 75 to 76,000 hectares, which is a huge increase on, on last year. Winter wheat will be 60 plus thousand hectares, which again is, is a, a slight increase on last year as well. So the areas of the main crops, wheat and barley, will be up. The area of winter oats will probably be down due to a, a seed issue. Um, seed just wasn't available, or enough seed wasn't available. Um, so we probably will be up overall in terms of winter plantings this year, yeah. So there won't be enough oats maybe available, but... Um... Potentially, yeah. That's what we're hearing from the traders, that the oat supply of seed was, was scarce. Barley was scarce, but we're probably finished barley sowings at this stage. Um, but um, again, barley supplies were tight, but there just seems to be enough just to get, get guys out. Um, wheat supplies seem to be pretty plentiful. So um, once, once potatoes are harvested and, and fodder beet are harvested and crops like that are harvested, um, the wheat will probably go into those slots then, you know. Finally, Shay, uh, chlorothenol, there's a lot of concerns around that at the moment. Uh, the EU Commission are, are having major discussions on it this week. There's talk of banning it. What kind of impact would that have on Irish tillage farms? Um, you're right, chlorothenol will have a huge impact on Irish farms if it's, if it's restricted or if it's, it's banned altogether. Um, we use it pretty much all across our wheat and barley crops. and uh, It's a key fungicide to to our crops um, and looking at the European Union and the way it's used across the European Union, so the northwestern countries ourselves, Britain, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, those type of countries that, that have a huge dependence on chlorothalonil for, for disease control and it serves a number of functions. Number one, it works as, a, as a, a fungicide in itself but also it helps to protect the other fungicides there that we are using as well from resistance issues whether it be in wheat or barley. So it acts as a, as a dual purpose type of product. Um, if it goes and it's banned in the next 12 to 18 months then we're, we're pretty much isolated in terms of what we can do uh, for disease control in, in wheat and barley. Especially barley, we're very, very limited in what we can use for, for a disease called ramillaria, which chlorothalonil is nearly the only active that has enough, has, has much activity on, on ramillaria control at this stage. So in those terms, you're probably going to look at um, pretty significant yield decreases in some years. Um, so that's obviously going to have an impact on farmers' incomes going down the line, you know. Thanks very much, Shay. We'll all be following that debate very closely over the coming weeks. And thank you very much to all our guests for joining us and to our sponsors, Homeland. If you have any comments or story ideas, you can contact the Farmland or Agriland teams by email or phone or reach out to us on our social media channels. Thank you at home for watching. We'll see you next time.